Good morning, Northwest Baptist Church. It's so good to be here. I'm privileged and honored to be able to give you God's word today. Um, as Dan said in the video, my name is Josh Sherrill. I'm one of the pastors at Providence Church in Lehigh Acres, Florida. And I'm joined today by my wife, Carolina, and our four children, Emma, Connor, Ellie, and Easton. Easton is enjoying the wonderful volunteers of your nursery right now. He didn't seem like that when my wife left him, but I'm sure he's doing better now. So, if you could open your Bibles with me to Psalm 15. I'm going to read that passage for us again. And then I'm going to pray before we get into it. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 15, it says this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Father, as we come before your word this morning, Lord, may you speak to us powerfully. May you point us to the riches that we have in Christ Remind us of our poverty. Remind us of the great grace and the glorious hope that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, that we one day, through him, may dwell with you. Speak through me, Lord. Honor yourself. Glorify your name. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Often when I'm preparing to preach, um, it gets a little stuffy in the office and I need to go out somewhere in the open. And so I found a little park not too far from our house. Um, it's not much of a park, really. There's a few picnic tables under a pavilion at the head of a trail. And it serves as an intersection of sorts. Not only do I get to study and have clarity of thought, but God will oftentimes give me the opportunity to speak with someone while I'm there. A few weeks ago, I met with a young man named Jonathan. And as we were talking about life work, other things, I began praying in my heart that the Lord would open an opportunity for me to share the gospel with Jonathan. And I'll just say this right here, if, if, making, if sharing the gospel with someone makes you nervous, don't worry, it doesn't get any easier for a pastor. It's still a nerve-wracking thing, having the fear of the Lord, fighting against the fear of man. And so I prayed in my heart, and I see the cross necklace he's wearing, and I asked him, so what, what significance does that cross have to you? He told me it was his grandfather's cross. And that wearing it reminded him that even when God felt distant, he knew God was near. I thought that was a, a very sweet reflection. When I learned more about him, and he told me that he believed in Christ and that he read the Bible, but he didn't really believe in church. He began to tell me some of his experiences with the church. And when he explained why he thought he didn't fit in, it all made sense. Let's just say that Jonathan's way of life is one that's celebrated this month of the year. Jonathan's way of life is one that's celebrated misusing 
the sign of God's covenant with Noah. And so I took the opportunity in that conversation to share with Jonathan the only hope that we have of approaching God, the only hope of a relationship we have with him, and that's through Christ Jesus. God created us to live with him in right relationship with him, and our sin has separated us from a holy God. But because of God's grace in providing his son, he has made a way. No one is too far to be brought in by the love and grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen? Jonathan, Jonathan had a distorted view of what it meant to approach God. And this is the very thing that we find in Psalm 15, this idea of approaching God. It begins with the question, who's going to dwell with the Lord? Who, who, who could possibly approach God in this way? Well, friends, we don't get to define for ourselves how we approach God, do we? No, we, we have a book. And this book tells us of the story of our Lord Jesus and how he has made a way for us to approach God. None of us are righteous. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands as an advocate for those who look to him in faith. And so as we come to the Psalms, the Psalms really are a book about approaching God. It's a book about all the movements of our soul. It calls us from every area of our life, from every corner of our walk, and leads us into the worship of the one true God. That is what the Psalms do. That is, that is how they help us. They point us to God. And each of them, as they expose certain aspects of our life and certain parts of our heart, they also make a claim. And in order to understand those claims, we need to understand the context. Right? So I heard a helpful illustration the other day um, about understanding the, the point of a passage. And it goes something like this. You know, you're standing in a park, and you look over, over the, the other side of the park, and you see some kids running around with pointy hats, and you see balloons, and you see a cake, and you see presents, and you see a banner. You may not be able to read what's on the banner, but you expect the banner to say something like, Happy Birthday, Right? All of those other things around the banner point to the context. They are the context that that banner is in. The banner tells us the truth. That banner could have said, congratulations on your adoption. So the context doesn't always tell us everything, but it's helpful in understanding the main point. What is the banner of Psalm 15? What is the main point of Psalm 15? I believe that as we come into this passage today, this is the one thing we're going to see, the one thing that we are going to find. And if you're taking notes, here it is. Here's the, main, here's the main claim. The one who would dwell with God lives according to his revealed will and has unwavering confidence in his presence. If I'm going to restate that in, in a, a simpler way, I'd say that those who would dwell with God live righteously. And that kind of life gives us unwavering confidence. It's not a works righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in God that is revealed in the acts of our lives. And so as we move through Psalm 15, we're going to see three parts to this psalm. First, the question in verse 1. Who would dwell with God? Second, we're going to see the response. And it is that the one who would dwell with God lives according to God's revealed will. Finally, we'll see the result. That the one who lives this way has unwavering confidence in the presence of God. So, verse 1, the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
In other words, who's worthy to live in God's presence? Who's worthy to go to God and make his home there? That language is is very important. When we read the word tent in the Psalms, it's referring to the place of God's people in God's presence, where God made his presence known, where God made his presence experienced. And, And when it came to approaching God's presence, few were able to enter. Some were able to enter the outer courts, fewer still the inner courts, and only one was able to enter the Holy of Holies. And even that one had to have a rope tied around his ankle in case he went in with unconfessed sin. It shows us the holiness of God. And as one theologian was reflecting on this passage, thinking about what what brought David to write this, he said he imagined David looking out on the hill at the tabernacle seeing all the people go up to offer their sacrifices for their sin, only to turn around and come back down. None of them could stay. And David reflects in his heart, Lord, who will ascend that hill and abide with you? Who could ascend that hill and stay in your presence? The natural conclusion in our hearts when we think of that question is that none of us are worthy. None of us are righteous. None of us are fit to enter God's presence. And so we see David in other places in Scripture pleading with God in Psalm 61, 4. Lord, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The question in the context of this psalm as it applies to us is how can we or who can we, who among us can dwell in God's presence with unwavering confidence. It's a question of walking with God, a question of fellowship. As Christians, we have the Spirit of God living in us, right? So we always have God's presence, right? But do we always experience God's presence? No, we we don't always experience God's presence. Sometimes it's our own sin. Sometimes our own sin hinders our fellowship with God. It doesn't cut us off forever, But it limits our experience of God's fellowship, of fellowship with God. Sometimes it's the circumstances of our life. It could be a shoulder surgery. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be loss of work. And those dark clouds of providence hide God's smiling face. So we don't sense his presence. And yet sometimes God uses those very things to draw us close, doesn't he? So as we think of Psalm 15 in this question of who will dwell with God, it represents the longing of being in God's presence. I'm reminded of of, um, something I believe John MacArthur said, that the thing that is most glorious about heaven is that there will be no sin there. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more hurting, no more shoulder surgeries, no more loss. Oh, what a... What a glorious day that will be when we will dwell in God's presence forever. And so the question, who will dwell with God, is answered in verses 2 through 5. And the response that we find is this. The one who would dwell with God lives according to his revealed will. Now, if that sounds a bit strange to you to say revealed will, I'm talking about his word. I'm talking about the God who has revealed himself. I mentioned context being important a moment ago. Psalm 15 is at the beginning of a group of psalms from 15 to 24. 
Both 15 and 24 repeat the same question. Look at Psalm 24 for a moment. In Psalm 24, verse 3, it says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer given there in Psalm 24 is very much like the one we find in Psalm 15. And it has to do with the one who lives his life according to God's way. The one who conforms their life to God's way. God has revealed his character to us in his word. And he has called us to live in his image, as bearers of his image. It's a call to a transformed life by the renewing of our minds to his perfect will. And so we see in verses 2 through 5, two main sections, verses 2 and 3, and then verses 4 and part of 5, that show us that the one who lives according to God's way, first he does righteous deeds. To put it simply, he does righteous deeds. Look at verse 2. His righteous deeds are seen in what he does do. It says he walks blamelessly and does what is right, or literally does righteousness. And he speaks truth in his heart. I'm using righteousness here in this passage in connection with the idea of blamelessness before God. The same question we asked a moment ago, who of us is righteous? The answer would be none. And yet we find in the scriptures that the righteous will live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's revealed will. Faith in God's word. Faith in God's son. It is ultimately Christ who is this righteous one we're talking about, who brings us into the presence of God. And all those who look to him have unwavering confidence. And it's revealed in their lives by what they do righteous deeds. Psalm 11:7 says the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Who are the upright? They're the ones who do righteous deeds. I need to reiterate here. I'm not talking about some kind of works righteousness that we prove ourselves to God and become worthy. That's not at all what I'm saying here. It's a matter of root and fruit. If our faith is rooted in the righteous Son of God, our lives will bear fruit of righteousness. If our root is found in this world, our lives, at best, will will have plastic fruit. The plastic fruit of righteousness. And you can staple as much plastic fruit on your life as you want, and it will never make you righteous before God. But the one who trusts in God, the one who lives according to God's way, does righteous deeds. I'm sure many of you know that this this imagery of walking in Scripture has to do with all of life. And we find it again in the New Testament. We find it in, in Philippians 1 where it says to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's talking about all of life, every part of our life. Essentially, the psalm is saying that the one who would dwell with God His entire life is marked by blamelessness. And again, I have to stop here for a moment and say, who among us can claim that? Who among us can claim that? This ought to bring us to the feet of the cross, reminding us of our need for Christ, calling us to follow in his way. Jonathan, as I spoke with him, he may have thought 
in his heart that he was doing the right thing, that he was good and that he was okay with God. His conscience may have been clear, but our conscience doesn't justify us before God. His conscience may have been clear. He may have been speaking his truth in his heart, but he wasn't speaking this truth in his heart. That phrase, speaking the truth in his heart, it reminds me of Psalm 1. The blessed man who, who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but what his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditate is the same word as murmuring. He's muttering, going around, mumbling God's word under his breath everywhere he goes. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 6, when God tells his people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall keep his word on your heart. Speaking of it with your children, when you rise, when you go, when you come back, when you're eating at Chick-fil-A, wherever you go is the point. God's word is to be constantly repeated, constantly, constantly on our hearts. I'll take a sidestep here for a moment. Any of you parents with kids, if you don't have a family devotional you go through, there is a family devotional called On Your Heart that my family uses. The title is based on Deuteronomy 6. It's a wonderful book. If you go through it, your, your whole family will have gone through the entire Bible, every chapter, in three years. If you have a child that's three years old, you can do the math on how many times you will have walked them through every chapter of the Bible by the time they graduate. And it's simple. There's a few questions for each chapter. Let's you sit back and let God's word do the work. Back to our passage here. <laughs> it's been so meaningful in, in my family's life. I wanted to mention that for you. I hope that it's a helpful resource to you. So first, in verse 2, we see that this righteousness is seen in what he does do. And in verse 3, we see that his righteousness is seen in what he does not do. Look at verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't slander with his tongue. Does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up reproach against his friend. The same things that were applied in the positive in verse 2 are now being applied in the negative. Things he does, things he doesn't do. This is what it looks like to live a righteous life, conformed to God, following his way. And we see in that first verse 2, his relationship directly with God, vertical relationship, vertical rightness. In verse 3, we see a horizontal rightness with his neighbors. He doesn't slander others. He doesn't do evil against his neighbor. Doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. How could we walk blamelessly before God if we slander others with our tongue? How could we possibly say that we do what is right if we do evil to our neighbors? How can we say we speak the truth in our hearts if we bear false witness against our friend, against our neighbor? In James 1, 19 and 20, it says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And where do those things come from? Slandering, doing evil to your neighbor, taking reproach against your friend. It comes from the anger of man, which does not produce what? The righteousness of God. It doesn't bear righteous fruit. It's not the way of the righteous. But he goes on to say, therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The righteous live by faith. Faith in what? 
Faith in God's word, faith in God's son. Their lives are conformed to what? To God's word and to who? To God's son. It's seen in what they don't do. It's seen in what they do. It's a life that has left the path of the world and steps into the path of God. The path that's laid out by his word. The one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what keeps us walking this path. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Is that works righteousness? No. It's speaking of the root and the fruit. If our lives are abiding in him, our lives will bear fruit of that relationship with him. He goes on, verse 4 of John, 1 John 2, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, whoever loves his word, whoever meditates on his word day and night, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, that we abide in him, that we will dwell with him. Whoever says he, says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus Christ walked blamelessly, and he calls us to do the same. If our faith is resting in Christ alone, he is our righteousness, and our lives will be a fruit of that truth. The one who would dwell with God lives according to God's way. He does righteous deeds. And and then in verses 4 and 5, we see not only does he do righteous deeds, he judges with righteous judgment. So now I'm talking about the decisions he makes. Look at verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. How he evaluates others. His righteous judgments are seen in how he evaluates others. Others, And he is known as one who judges others rightly. He sees others the way God sees them. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase used, only God can judge me. And usually the phrase comes out to, to silence unwanted, um, unwanted perspective on someone's life. Only God can judge me. Don't, don't, don't bring that Bible stuff over here. Well, since you brought God into it, you're right. God can judge you, and he can judge me too, and he has. There is only one way where we can stand before God with confidence, and that is through Christ. And a life that is conformed to him. So when we look to people who who say those things, we can relate, right? There was a time in our life when we walked in darkness. We were enemies of God, children of wrath. That ought to give us great humility. So I'm not saying that this is that the one who walks before God is a cruel rejecter of those who don't. When it says that he despises the vile person, it doesn't mean that he looks down on other people. It means that he judges the way that God judges and speaks the truth of God's word. You might have also heard, I was born that way. Maybe a lot this month. And you might have heard your pastor say in one of his podcasts recently, you've heard it before, you might have been born that way, but God says you must be born again. It's true that only God can judge us, and he has. It's true, it may be true that we were born a certain way, but we must be born again. 
this kind of judgment. For those who would say, but, but doesn't Matthew 7.1 say, judge not? Doesn't, doesn't Matthew 7.1 say that? Well, if you keep reading, the first part of that passage says, take the log out of your eye so that you can what? So that you can see the speck in your brother, so that you can help your brother. Well, how do you do that if you don't point out the sin? And look later on in the passage. You'll know them by their fruits. Beware of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. You'll know them by their fruits. God is pronouncing judgment. And the one who judges with righteous judgment simply follows God's way. But we do it with humility. Do it with humility because we were once as they are now. Jesus ate with sinners, but why? To call them to repentance, to call them to the love and grace that was poured out from the cross. We might be able to break bread with the world. Jesus did. But we don't break bread with the world in the same way that we break bread amongst each other as believers, do we? In whose eyes the vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Look around you. This is your family. These are the ones who fear the Lord. These are the ones whom God has placed you with. Look up to them. Look, look out. There might be someone here that you can call closer to the Lord. There might be someone here who can call you closer to the Lord. Honor them. That's what we find in Psalm 16. David says, Lord, I have no good apart from you. But as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The person who would dwell with God judges with righteous judgments. And we see that in the way he evaluates others. We also see that in the way he keeps his word. Look at the second part of verse 4. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Here again, we find a reflection of God's character. Psalm 110.4, David said, quoting the Lord, I have sworn and I will not change my mind. Speaking on behalf of the Lord. And what do we find in the latter part of that verse? You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who's he talking to? Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. We learn that from Hebrews very clearly. When you think about this, this promise that God has made in Christ, let me just step back for a moment and, and, and clarify. Swears to his own hurt and does not change. Well, what could that possibly mean? You know, in this time, when this was written, there were covenants being made. And how these covenants were often made is that the person making the covenant would split an animal and lay the animal out and say, may worse happen to me if I do not fulfill this covenant. He swears to his own hurt. If he does not keep his word, he's bringing a curse upon his head. Those oaths were made with the splitting of an animal at the cost of one's life. The new covenant we have was not made with the splitting of an animal. It was made in the breaking of the body of the Son of God. So when we think about this swearing to your own hurt, you know, I've made promises that were hard to keep. I'm sure you have as well. Some of you have said, till death do us part. That's a, that's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> you can laugh. That's okay. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult. By God's grace, we, we keep that covenant. If it was up to me myself, I would fail every time. But by God's grace, he has preserved this covenant that I'm in with my wife. Even greater is the 
picture that marriage presents, and that is the picture of the one who died for us, who swore to his own hurt and will not change his mind, who will forever love those who he calls to himself. This integrity that we see on the natural level is an important characteristic of the Christian life as well. If we're not willing to keep our word, we're not rightly representing God. We're not bearing the fruit of the righteousness that is necessary to dwell with God. God keeps his promises. We ought to keep our promises as well. So this one who would dwell with God judges with righteous judgment. It's seen in the way he evaluates others. It's seen in the way that he uh, keeps his word. And finally, it's seen in the way he handles his money. Look at the first part of verse 5. He does not put out money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. I believe it's referring specifically to how he handles money. You've heard that money is the root of all evil. And fact checkers say that that's wrong, right? (laughs) The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The problem is not the currency. The problem is our heart. The problem is where our heart rests. Because where our heart is found, there our treasure will be also. If we store up treasure on this earth, our heart will be anchored to it. But if we store up treasure in heaven, there's where our heart will be. There's where we'll set our eyes. Whatever has a hold of our heart will show itself in how we use money, but it goes farther than money. It goes to every aspect of this life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Christian is a man who expects nothing from this world. He doesn't pin his hopes on it because he knows that it is doomed. That's how we ought to live. The things we have in this world are, are temporary. The one thing the world can never take away from us and that will always go with us is knowledge of God. That's going to forever increase. What we learn here will take with us into glory. And it will only be built upon forever. Learning to judge with righteous judgments. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, it warns about these things in the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And here we find the conclusion in this psalm. He who does these things shall never be moved. You hear the echo there? The truth in this psalm is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. We find it in many, many places. We find it in Jesus speaking. One occasion in a, in a house in, Luke, in Matthew 12. It says, while Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. This is in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And how did he reply? He said, who is my brother? And who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Our lives bear the evidence of where we are rooted. Our lives bear the evidence of our destination to put it another way. If we would dwell with God, our lives will bear the evidence of the righteousness by which we are saved through Christ. 
Again, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 and 25, everyone who hears these words of mine and what does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. He who does these things will never be moved. He who bases his life on the revealed will of God in his word, trusting in Christ alone, this one will never be moved. Why? Because he will hold us fast. Though we fear our faith will fail, he will hold us fast. Though the tempter would prevail, he will hold us fast. This is the promise that we find embedded in the words of this psalm. So where's our confidence before God? Where is your confidence before God today? As I spoke with Jonathan, it became clear to me that he was not standing before God with unwavering confidence. Not only because he didn't conform his life, but because he didn't really understand this message. I pray that that conversation I had with him pricks his heart. He did tell me at the end of the conversation I needed to hear that. But I wonder if that was just a way of kindly exiting the situation, avoiding the confrontation. My prayer is, and I would ask you to pray for this young man named Jonathan, that God's word would convict his heart. That he would see that there is one way to approach this God. There is one way of right relationship. And there is a way of having unwavering confidence that we will dwell with God. And it is through Christ Jesus. Is he worthy? He is. He is. The one who would dwell with God lives according to his revealed will and has unwavering confidence in his presence. If you don't know this confidence today, look to the cross. Look to the empty grave. See the Son of God slain for sinners like you and I. He gives hope that knows no end. He gives grace without measure. And you can know that grace. You can know that hope. And perhaps you're here today and, and you, you've forgotten. We're all capable of that. Be reminded, may the Lord, by his spirit, through his word, encourage you today that you, if you are standing in Christ, you will never be moved. He will hold you fast to the end and you will dwell with God on his holy hill, with his king, our King Jesus. Let me close us by reading a prayer. It's such a good prayer, I'd prefer to use this one than my own. So if you would, let's, let's close our eyes. I'm going to close with this prayer. It says this, Hail, blessed Jesus, you alone are worthy of ascending and fixing your eternal residence on the holy hill of Zion, which you have righteously earned. You alone are worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your own precious blood. Hail, thou almighty God, in your light we shall see light. Be thou our portion while below. Help us to ascend by faith now the holy hill of your dwelling and in your righteousness to contemplate your person and your complete work until you bring us home to behold your glory and dwell with you forever. Amen.